welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and we're lucky enough to be taken through this operative guest episode by Dr. Michael Crawford, who's been kind enough to give up his time to talk to us about a number of different topics in hepatobiliary surgery. Today, we're going to cover how to perform a gastroenterostomy, some tips and tricks for the difficult laparoscopic cholecystectomy, including preoperative features that might make you suspicious it will be difficult, Maritzi syndrome and bailout options, laparoscopic splenectomy tips, tricks and pitfalls, some talk about chronic liver failure, and then we'll finish off with a discussion about transcystic bile duct exploration and laparoscopic cholidochotomy. I learned so much talking to Michael. I'm really grateful for his time, and I hope you learn as much from this episode as I did talking to him. So to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Michael Crawford. I'm a surgeon at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital as my teaching hospital in Sydney. I have a general surgical practice which is um, focused on hernia, gallbladder and bariatric surgery as well as a hepatobiliary practice where I've particularly uh, had an interest in uh, liver surgery and I'm a liver transplant surgeon and I head up the liver transplant unit at Prince Alfred. This is obviously a podcast about preparing for the fellowship exam. Do you have any tips that you would give to your trainees who are preparing for or studying for the exam? I think you've probably covered a lot of the general tips that I would give, like um, starting early and uh, really sort of just having a big general deep dive in early and then sort of concentrate on the things that you uh, don't remember well, perhaps even just the days before the exam. And so what I did uh, when I was studying for my exam now many years ago, 1999, I think it was, was to actually write notes for myself and then I would go through those notes and if I didn't remember something as I was going through I would write it on a new note and I got an ever decreasing pile of notes as things went through and uh, ultimately ended up with just a couple of pages to review uh, just prior to the exam. But I think one of the things that's really difficult about the part two exam is boundaries about what you need to know. And I think that that's going to be always a bit of a problem because um, we live in this world where there is so much subspecialization, it's impossible to know everything that everybody knows about a particular topic. And so at some point, you just have to draw a line and say, I understand enough about that to cope with what would be expected for this exam. And that's a judgment call for each uh, area, but you can look through old exams and talk to people who've done the exam recently and get a feel for the type of uh, extent that you need to go to in each uh, topic. And that will change and be very topic dependent. And, uh, you know, things like, you know, genetic profiling of tumors and things like that have evolved and changed since I was a young lad doing the exam. But I think that's probably one of the hardest things. At the end of the day, the exam, I believe, is about making sure that you are going to practice safe surgery. And that's really the most important thing to demonstrate and have a good basic and general understanding of things. It is a bit of a stupid exam because it makes you in general surgery study for things that if you are going to go into subspecialty practice, you may never ever from the moment of that exam have to worry about again. For instance, you know, if you're not going to do head and neck surgery or you're not going to do breast surgery or, or whatever, but that's the nature of the exam. It's good for us to learn things about uh, areas which we don't actually engage in as well. Hmm. Fantastic. Some good tips. I like that idea of the smaller and smaller pile of notes to go through before the exam. That's quite clever. Well, it's, it's just because I'm a bit of a crammer, I guess, uh, was my, my study technique. And I've always liked to understand why rather than understand the facts and so that I could go back to first principles and work things out. So rather than just uh, remembering dogma, I try to understand, well, why, why would that be the right thing to do? And I found in studying for the exam and in my practice that there's often things that come up that just don't make any sense and you know 
Um, a really good example of that, for instance, is uh, biliary colic. And we get taught that, oh, well, biliary colic happens because you've got a stone impacted in the neck of the gallbladder. At least that's what I was taught in medical school. And yet um, most people with biliary colic don't have a stone impacted in the neck of the gallbladder. People with acalculus cholecystitis and and gallbladder polyps don't have stones impacted in the neck of the gallbladder. And one thing they do have in common, though, is chronic cholecystitis changes on their histology, which are almost certainly due to the buildup of crystals, microscopic crystals within the gallbladder. And then microscopic crystals then congeal together to make gallstones. And sure, some people will have a stone impacted in Hartman's pouch, and that's why they're getting pain but the majority don't. So those sorts of things always really annoyed me because you get taught something and it doesn't make sense and you just have to make sense of it to yourself. Well, I came up with a list of operative scenarios or questions around some hepatobiliary operations to talk to you about today, if you're happy to move on to going through those. For sure, yeah. So in our curriculum, they talk about us knowing how to perform a gastroenterostomy. I was hoping you could take us through your technique for this and, you know, any tips that you have in terms of how we might perform this. Yeah, so I think that there are two main approaches to performing a loop gastroenterostomy, which is probably what um, most people are going to perform. Sometimes it will be a rewire, but most of the operations where I would do a gastroenterostomy would be either uh, in my bariatric practice or um, as a result of a Whipple procedure. And I don't usually create a roof for either of those, at least not these days, I'm usually using a loop. And uh, the two main um, approaches are to bring it either um, retrocolic behind the transverse colon through a window in the transverse mesocolon uh, or to bring it anticolic. And so in my earlier practice and when I was being taught, we often went retrocolic and through the transverse mesocolon, but this can lead to particular problems of kinking and narrowing. And if you are going to do that, a good approach is actually to deliver the stomach through so that your actual anastomosis ends up being in the infracolic compartment. So you don't have this loop of bowel that goes up and kinks in the mesocolon. But these days, I almost always would perform an anticolic anastomosis. And for an exam, I would talk about doing a two-layered hand-sewn anastomosis. Um, usually, I will have amputated the stomach at around about the antrum, so that just I'm just below the, the incisura, and there'll be a long staple line there. Oftentimes, I'll sew the bowel along the entire staple line, being careful to orientate the bowel so that I don't have an unnatural twist in the bowel. And then I will only open on the greater curvature part over the course of about two to three centimetres and do the actual anastomosis there. And the reason for oversewing the staple line and bringing the bowel up like that is to try and prevent kinking uh, of the bowel and also to achieve better hemostasis. And it's a pretty quick thing to sort of just do a whip stitch through. And then I would just open the stomach and the bowel after I've sewn that posterior layer. And then I use uh, usually a 3-0 uh, monocrule with a double needle. And I just pass that through, sew the back wall and then continue around the front wall with both sutures. And I'll often do a canals stitch or two as I come around the corners just to help to invert things nicely. And then I'll run an anterior serosa uh, to serosa closure over the top of that. Prior to completing the anterior inner layer, I'll usually place the nasogastric tube so that it sits in the afferent limb because my concerns are upstream on the afferent limb with what, you know, if I was doing a Whipple operation or something like that with uh, protecting the hepaticojejunostomy and the pancreaticojejunostomy. And the last thing you want to do is to have some sort of a kink or some problem at the gastroenterostomy that then causes a back pressure blowout of those things. So if I am going to pass a nasogastric tube across the anastomosis, it will usually be kind of counterintuitively into the afferent limb. And you do that back wall as a continuous suture as well? All of it done as continuous, yeah. For me, it's always done as continuous. But I think that this type of anastomosis, just like a small bowel anastomosis or a colonic anastomosis, there's many, many ways to skin a cat. And in my bariatric practice, I usually do a 
stapled anastomosis and just closed the enterotomy with a V-lock single layer suture and um, touch wood have not had problems with that approach. But again, I think it's a matter of setting things up, making sure that there's no kinking. And uh, when you're finished, just make sure that the, the lie of the afferent and the efferent limbs are comfortable for the passage of fluids and everything else will fall into place typically. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that description. That was great. We've talked a little bit about the difficult laparoscopic cholecystectomy before we started the episode. What features in a patient would make you suspicious or suspect that the operation is going to be difficult before you start? Well, I guess there are patient features and then there are going to be gallbladder features. And so the patient features that you'd worry about would be things like uh, previous surgery where there will likely be lots of adhesions, morbid obesity, previous incisions right um, where you want to be operating, particularly if they're in the right upper quadrant in, in the line of where you want to operate, those sorts of things. Uh, whereas the gallbladder features, which I think are, the, are more tricky in some ways, would be things like uh, somebody presenting with severe acute cholecystitis, particularly in the presence of uh, diabetes, somebody having um, evidence of uh, sepsis, and a palpable gallbladder in the right upper quadrant indicating a very edematous, swollen um, gallbladder. I didn't ask you about this beforehand or warn you about this, so I hope you don't mind me springing this on you, but I was hoping to talk to you about Maritzi syndrome. I understand about the state, the classification, so either just indenting the bile duct or the common hepatic duct causing some obstruction, a fistula, a third or two-thirds or all the way through into the bile duct, and then if there's also a colidocoduodenal fistula. Yeah. I've never seen one, so I don't really know how these patients present and if most of the time you pick this up on imaging or you just suspect it because they're jaundiced and you do an MRI. And I understand with a type 1 where there's no fistula, you could potentially do a cholecystectomy, but I understand that there would be a hole in the bile duct if there was a fistula and you try to take the gallbladder off and what you actually do in practice as a hepatobiliary surgeon in those situations. Yeah, I think that that's a... Uh, an important question, but one that ultimately will be tailored to the clinical situation. So most of the time, um, the more advanced Maritzi syndromes will be picked up on your imaging if you've got contemporary imaging uh, to go with it. The patients tend to be um, presenting with acute cholecystitis and jaundice at the same time. So they, they often that stone has created an outflow obstruction to the gallbladder and it's sort of gradually eroding its way down along the cystic duct, expanding the cystic duct until it gets to the junction. And at that point, it'll either be just poking into it or almost all the way through, or perhaps even having passed all the way through with a, with essentially a, a fistulization between the, um, the gallbladder and the, the main hepatic duct. What you do Operatively to manage that will depend on what you've done beforehand and also on what the uh, quality of the tissues are going to be like. So if somebody has presented with what is thought to be Maritzi's and jaundice, we will often try to manage things with a uh, ERCP and a temporary plastic stent, um, which sometimes the uh, endoscopist can actually pass one stent into the main bile duct and one stent or into the hepatic duct at least and one stent up alongside the stone into the gallbladder to help decompress the gallbladder. That would allow you then a period of uh, some antibiotics and some rest and kind of just to calm the whole situation down and take away the emergency out of it. That's not always going to be the case so it may be that there'll be a stent placed in the main bile duct and hepatic duct to overcome the jaundice and then you might have to proceed with a cholecystectomy because of ongoing cholecystitis and under those circumstances really what you do at the bottom end is going to depend on the quality of the tissues. If the quality of the tissues are extremely poor or there's a large fistula there and to get the stone out the only way is to do open surgery, you should do open surgery. If the only way to deal with it is to have a hole in the common hepatic duct, common bile duct junction, 
then a RUI reconstruction might be, a hepaticogegenostomy might be the only salvage strategy. Um, but most of the time, uh, one will be able to either milk the stone back into the gallbladder and continue with a cholecystectomy that's difficult but um, technically possible or to have some tissue of the gallbladder that you leave behind and amputate a little bit higher so that you can safely close that usually using suturing techniques and really whether you'd approach that with with a laparoscope or a robot or as open surgery would be dependent on your own um, skill set and what you're comfortable with. But I think these are the types of cases that are probably, if they're recognised and the patient's well enough to uh, either wait until there's uh, a hepatobiliary specialist available or even potentially transfer to a hepatobiliary practice, that might be a, a sensible strategy to to uh, look after those those people. And very occasionally you might need to do a cholecystostomy tube alongside the ERCP to just let things calm right down. Mm. As you said at the start for the exam, it's about being safe. And if you had that on imaging, I think hopefully saying that you would transfer that to a specialist would be the right thing to say. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think if there's a Maritzi suggested on imaging and there's jaundice, so clinical jaundice, then I think it's entirely reasonable under those circumstances to proceed with an ERCP and you'll get more information at the time of the ERCP about whether there's other stones, whether that stone is really all the way across and almost in, um, you'll get you'll get those pictures. And it would be very rare that they wouldn't be able to get a wire and then a stent up past the stone to decompress the liver and allow the jaundice to settle before you have to go in with surgery. But, uh, you know, they, they're worrisome cases and, and the fact that you haven't seen one tells you that, that they're quite rare, but they're also the ones which are dangerous, I guess, um, in that sense. And I think the other group that worries me with cholecystitis is the diabetics. And um, I really get much more worried about a diabetic patient presenting with acute cholecystitis because of the risk of gangrene and perforation and, and them getting sick very quickly. It's not so uncommon, unfortunately, to see somebody in that setting with a with a perforated uh, gallbladder due to gangrene, um, and they and they're difficult gallbladders to deal with because they're very hard to grasp. They're very hard to get good exposure of all of the the critical elements of the operation, um, and therefore a little bit more mm. risky. I always wonder when I see those how cholecystitis used to be managed conservatively in so many people you see these gallbladders and think how could this have ever settled down with antibiotics yeah I think I think that there are some that just don't properly yeah and um, I think that uh, those that present with acute cholecystitis who are diabetic I have a low threshold for getting in very quickly um, with the laparoscope to approach those because they're likely or reasonably likely to perforate and the patients can get quite sick and, and don't always present with all of the external signs of that with peritonitis and so forth that you'd normally expect. In terms of cholecystectomy, what is your bailout option if you can't obtain a critical view of safety? I think in the past, the proper answer was probably to say that you would open, but you know, somebody like me who's had very little experience with an open operation, I don't necessarily know how that would make it easier unless there is a big impact with stone like you say there's a lot of talk about subtotal cholecystectomy and i hear a lot of people talk about um, reconstituting the gallbladder and how that could just cause stones to come back and i'm just wondering what your perspective is on on those and versus opening so i think again it will depend on what the tissues look like and what the real problem is and so if we can imagine one of those really edematous gallbladders and it's really hard to know where the gallbladder um, stops and where the cystic duct might be if there is a cystic duct and maybe it's associated with type 1 type Maritzi's or, or something like that where there's a stone that's very deep down and um, has caused some obstruction. I think that the thing that you can do in almost every case is to find a safe spot to open the gallbladder place your plastic bag in early on those cases so that either intentionally you'll open the gallbladder or unintentionally you'll open the gallbladder and there's often lots of stones and 
um, you don't want to spend half an hour or an hour at the end of the operation trying to trace down those stones and stones that are left behind can form um, abscesses and you know come out in the bronchi and all sorts of uh, weird fistulizations so I think uh, having a plastic bag in there early and certainly before you intentionally open the gallbladder is a good idea and then find a spot where you can open the gallbladder safely. If you had ICG available to you, and that's something that's um, probably in the next five years or so, I suspect going to be used more and more, it would be these type of cases where it might be quite useful to help to outline where the ducts are. Of course, it doesn't tell you necessarily where the arteries are and, um, and the portal vein, but it'll help to reassure you when opening up that you're opening up the gallbladder and not something else. If you don't know for sure that it's the gallbladder, you go higher until you're sure that it's the gallbladder. If you totally can't understand anything that's going on um, as you put your scope in and you haven't opened the gallbladder and you haven't done any permanent damage, it might be reasonable to stop. There is no failure in stopping because the pathology is so bad if you don't feel confident that you could deal with that case in either way. But getting back to the question, I would open the gallbladder up above the neck of the gallbladder, in other words, above where all the, the worst trouble is and the, the difficult dissection is because of the fibrosis that's there. Being aware that as fibrosis occurs in some gallbladders, it kind of sucks the hepatis back up towards the gallbladder, and that's one of the, the pitfalls here in, in trying to dissect out the cystic duct more normally. Um, and then I would take out all of the stones that I could. Um, I would often uh, upsize. I usually use three five millimeter ports for my working instruments and just have a 12 at the umbilicus. But I would upsize one of those potentially to a 12 so that I could put a 10 millimeter sucker in because that's often helpful at dealing with uh, small stones if there are small stones that will fit up the 10 millimeter sucker and then extract all of the stones out this will now give you an idea about where the limits of the gallbladder are because you've got an open uh, cup-shaped lower gallbladder uh, like a goblet and you really want to work your way down until you can see where the stem of the goblet is and you can therefore cut away some of the edges safely at that stage and just take it slowly. And, and it, if you can see where the cystic duct orifice is from the inside, you can place a stitch and then just leave that lower material open in a fenestrating subtotal cholecystectomy and place a drain. I think uh, there is going to be a little bit of a risk of a, a temporary bile leak if you take that approach, depending on how good your stitches hold and how well you stitched but that should not be a permanent problem and um, will ultimately just settle down with um, with drainage even if the patient has to temporarily go home with the drain in place i am not in love with the reconstituting uh, subtotal because of the risk of further stone formation and further episodes of uh, cholecystitis but in the setting of something like a Maritzi syndrome, you effectively are doing a kind of a mini version of that. If you are going to reconstitute, you want to just keep the volumes of that uh, reconstituted gallbladder as small as possible. It's a poorly functioning gallbladder that's proven itself able to make stones and it's likely to do so again. And the second time round, that's going to be really tricky surgery. In terms of taking the gallbladder off the liver, if you really are struggling, if there's the presence of cirrhosis, for instance, of the liver, and there's been some bleeding, you may decide that, that it's just impossible to find that plane between the gallbladder and the cystic plate. And under those circumstances, just leave the back wall of the gallbladder there and then run your, uh, your hook diathermy, turn it up to 80 or so on spray and just kind of try to obliterate the, the mucosa a bit to just reduce the risk of a of a mucosal or some sort of problem like that. I think in general terms there, my approaches, um, I agree with you that opening was historically the kind of the, the bailout option and you just had to tick that box. And I think it's, it's more complicated than that because in the real world, opening doesn't necessarily make things easier. 
and there's quite a bit of uh, evidence that suggests a retrograde cholecystectomy from the fundus down approach is actually more dangerous than a proper approach to the hepatocystic triangle um, like we use in laparoscopic surgery. So try to avoid that if we can. We do fundus down approach during um, liver transplant surgery, but it's one of the rare rare, rare occasions where we do that, where we're taking the gallbladder out, not because of uh, a problem with the gallbladder. We understand all the anatomy that's going on in there because we've got it all explained. Mm, yeah, I've been doing a few open fundus downs in some whipples recently, and I find that the tricky point is deciding when you're going to come anterior across the front wall as you're following the gallbladder down and not just going straight into the hilums. I think I think the answer to that is um, take take the artery up next to the gallbladder as you come to it, and then find the cystic duct, and just stay on the cystic duct. And if you're only on the cystic duct, it's very very hard to go wrong. Um, and that means you need to be on the cystic duct, not not with loads of tissue around the cystic duct. You want to be on the cystic duct if you're going to do that. But it is still a, it is still a slightly risky procedure to do it in that. And I still, you know, during my whipples, if I'm doing an open whipple operation, will um, usually do a dissection of the hepatocystic triangle to make sure that they're, uh, even if I then do a fundus down approach to actually remove the gallbladder, because I think that is a, a technically easier way to remove the gallbladder from the cystic plate, I will have already exposed the cystic duct and the cystic artery um, down down below so that I'm clear of the uh, the porta hepatitis. Yeah, I think your approach, which I listened to a podcast that you'd done uh, recently on, a, on an operative uh, description, was was really nice. The, the technique that I do, um, which is uh, something that's done by few, is to use the Maryland uh, force for all of my dissection up until the point that we've completed cholangiogram and divided the cystic duct. What I think is a particular, must be an Australian thing that we talk about here is to start posterolaterally. Um, and so always the first division of the overlying peritoneum for me is posterolaterally. And uh, I think with the Marylands, then I'm able to actually do almost all of the dissection from that angle um, without even worrying about pulling uh, Hartman's pouch back and um, approaching it anteriorly and opening up the hepatocystic triangle. I get behind everything. And the key to that is to dissect down until you're on the gallbladder and stay on the gallbladder. And then the Marylands uh, allows you to place it, tips in at what I call the armpit of the gallbladder where the neck becomes the cystic duct and just place it in there and, and just gently spread pushing in and oftentimes will pop out the other side if the peritoneum is not too strong on the other side and you've actually made your opening there and it's just an extremely safe way in my opinion of doing um, that initial dissection. There was a really interesting video that's going around was on Twitter last week. I don't know whether you saw that. I have, yes. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think it's just terrifying to watch but also I learned so much. I could see how they started where they did. I just think it's wonderful It's wonderful that the surgeon who shared it and the surgeons who did it um, were prepared to have that done. That's really important. But you could see that what they did was they had a difficult gallbladder and they, they dove in with the hook in what they thought was the hepatocystic triangle. They hadn't defined that. The advantage of the posterior first approach is that it really helps to elevate up that posterior part of the gallbladder and and really when you do get into the hepatocystic triangle it's very hard to to get that wrong the more you've done posteriorly the easier the rest of it is and in my view the safer the rest of it is and obviously staying above that line of safety from rubias up to segment four is important sometimes the hartman's pouch is sort of really kind of pinned down and below that and that's okay. Just don't start your dissection there. And as you dissect posteriorly and mobilize that posterior part of the gallbladder, usually that will then become so that you can elevate it up and above and then you stay above your line of safety. I think um, there was a period of time where there was a lot of discussion about, you know, intraoperative cholangiogram being super important to prevent bile duct injuries based on some epidemiological studies that were done and they're really interesting studies to go back and have a look at but I've, one of my 
bugbears was was thinking that that actually prevented um, bile injuries. I think what it does is that it makes you do good surgery to get a cholangiogram. You've got to really elongate things and you tend to do a little bit more work before you cut and clip things. And I think that that might help. But in this era of the critical view of safety, which is a relatively, in my career, a relatively recent invention, something that I think most of us over the years had sort of invented a version of ourselves, but it's really nice to have it written down and to have all of these uh, these steps and to, to to put in words that whole, make sure you've got a third of the, the gallbladder off the cystic plate and um, that you've got just the two structures and nothing else running in that hepatocystic triangle. It's really important. In my view, once you've done that in the normal course of events, it's essentially impossible after that to have a bile duct injury. You might have already made one, but it's impossible after that to create a bile duct injury. And so a cholangiogram, really the most important thing probably is just to recognize a bile duct injury if there is one at that stage. But I have certainly seen the cases of common paddock ducts being completely surrounded by fibrous tissue um, and essentially attached to the lower, you know, fifth or so of the gallbladder posteriorly so that, you know, as you lift that up, um, it really does look like the, the cystic duct in those occasions. It was interesting that, that um, video that we were talking about before, the common hepatic duct was being mistaken for the back wall of the gallbladder. But again, if you've gone posteriorly, that won't happen. It's because they took an anterior approach. And most of the comments that I saw on that on Twitter uh, didn't even mention the posterior approach. No, nobody sort of thought that that was an important um, thing, which I, which I found interesting. And, and it may be an, an Australian-centric thing that uh, people here have always taught. I don't know. Mm, there was an article that I got pointed to quite early on by one of my consultants about the posterior approach. It was a New Zealand publication. So maybe that's why it's a very Australian thing. Yeah. So Saxon, Saxon Connors really, that might've been him who's um, very smart in, uh, in gallbladder. He really thought about it very well. Yeah. I tend to agree with him. Saxon and I were, were both on um, the executive at one stage of the ANZHPBA. And so we talked a lot about this. And Saxon, Saxon I think, uh, agrees with me that the, the idea that a cholangiogram prevents bile injuries was, um, was really probably a bit silly and that it probably just shows you if you've, if you've made one at the time. But uh, nonetheless, there are those that do still believe, I think, that uh, it's an important um, procedure to do to prevent bile duct injury. I think it's um, potentially important for other reasons, but not for that one. So are you a routine cholangiogrammer or selective? So I haven't been. What I've always done, though, is to teach cholecystectomy in the public sector. But I must say I'm not a routine cholangiographer at heart. I think that cholangiography very occasionally causes problems and those problems are sometimes hard to understand what problems they are, but I'll give you an example. So when I was a young surgeon, freshly in practice, I actually had a patient transferred in who was a, a young, I think 18 or 20 year old, who'd had a... Um, cholecystectomy and uh, intraoperative cholangiogram and there was something that they thought was a stone. He had normal liver function tests and no indication of a, of a um, common duct stone. He had a, a duct that was no bigger than four or five millimetres and unfortunately he had attempted laparoscopic uh, expiration of his bile duct through a cholidochotomy and he ended up uh, having you know, a very horrible leak and stricture related to that and was very, very sick and needed a rewire reconstruction. And it kind of said to me that sometimes uh, doing things that seem like they are of minimal risk um, still has some risks if you do them every single time often enough. And another couple of examples was there was a, a week where I had two patients who had perforated esophaguses through nasogastric tubes placed at the time of cholecystectomy, which was a routine when we started to do cholecystectomy. So I don't place a nasogastric tube during cholecystectomy almost ever, but I think anesthesia has probably improved and we don't see as much uh, air being pumped into the stomach in, in the lead up to laparoscopic surgery as we did in those days. So I think that all of these things, you know, they, they seem trivial, but 
Um, there's nothing that we do that doesn't have some risk to it, so there better be a good reason for you to do anything. I think for the exam, the safest thing is to say that you're a routine cholangiographer because those that of us that practice selective cholangiography in this country, not around the world, but in this country are in the minority, and we're less zealous about it than those that practice routine, if that makes sense, so that there are some people who are so zealous about this whole thing about preventing bile duct injuries and stuff that it's probably easier in case you're sitting in the room with one of those people not to have to try and defend doing a selective. My next question is about splenectomy. You have a fantastic YouTube channel I've been watching, including a video I found really interesting on a laparoscopic splenectomy for quite a large spleen. I've only been involved in a few laparoscopic splenectomies at this point in my career, hopefully one in the next couple Mm. of weeks again. Um, What are some of the operative tips that you could talk to about doing a laparoscopic splenectomy and how would you manage these? I think in the exam, they like to talk to us about, you know, pitfalls or times that things might go wrong during the surgery and what you might try and do to fix them. So the first thing is to start with why you're doing the splenectomy, obviously. Um, Is it for a tumour or for a haematological condition or for some other reason. Um, Sometimes we do splenectomies because we're doing a distal pancreatectomy and we want to remove it that way, um, obviously. So firstly, understand why you're doing the splenectomy. And that's important because if you're doing it for um, some haematological conditions, it might be important to know about splenunculi and remove them. If you're doing it um, not for a haematological reason it might be good to know about splenunculi to preserve them. So I would suggest that everybody having splenectomy should have some cross-sectional imaging. I just use a triple phase CT scan. That helps you to understand ahead of time where some of those pitfalls might lie. And the important things are the course of the splenic artery, which is quite variable. And as you know, uh, the splenic artery is a a very squiggly artery that sort of um, bounces around in a wave type formation and just what its orientation is to the other structures around there and the tail of the pancreas. So the tail of the pancreas uh, can be quite a distance from the hilum of the spleen or it can almost be swallowed up into the spleen itself and so it's good to know that ahead of time just so that you're prepared for it. Of the structures most at risk or the the pitfalls, I guess, and harm that you might do during a splenectomy. Bleeding is the most common and um, potentially most life-threatening, actually, um, complication. So identifying early on where the vessels are, particularly the artery, the the splenic vein is going to be hidden a little under the pancreas, at least uh, as you get closer to the midline. So understanding where that is, early in the procedure is useful so keeping an eye out for it and you'll usually see it underneath some peritoneum and fat above the level of the pancreas. The other uh, organ that's at particular uh, risk is the stomach and so if you are just doing a laparoscopic splenectomy for a not too big spleen um, some people favour taking down the linorenal ligament and then continuing that line up posteriorly all the way to the top even before they've done anything to kind of mobilize the spleen and allow it to flop forward a bit. I don't tend to do that because I quite like the spleen sitting there. One of the pitfalls with that technique though is that as as your vision sort of disappears up around the top there the fundus of the stomach is often wrapped around the top there and it's very easy to get um, thermal injury to the stomach that you may or may not recognize. And then the other place that the stomach can get damaged is during the takedown of the short gastric vessels. And so when you're taking them down, be aware of whatever instrument you're using to do that, whether you're using clips or using energy. And if you're using energy, which I think most of us are pretty comfortable with these days, just ensure that you've got a little bit of distance between your energy device and the edge of the stomach for fear of a thermal injury that might present not immediately but later on and if there was substantial thermal injury then you might need to attend to either stitching that or resecting it or whatever but trying to avoid it. One of the things about a big spleen is that the big spleen as it grows tends to 
envelop everything into it. And so if you can imagine the 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 hilum is just sort of sucking everything towards the hilum. And so the short gastrics get shorter and more difficult and the tail of the pancreas tends to get sort of sucked in there as the as the spleen effectively is growing itself around all of these structures and so you've got to be aware of those the other organ at risk is the uh, colon and i think dealing with the colon early on and um, allowing the splenic flexure to to drop away by dividing um, the attachments between the spleen and the splenic flexure is worthwhile and even taking that down in front of the uh, the left kidney a little bit just to allow the, the colon to flop down. I tend to do these operations in a lazy lateral position on bean bags and strap the patient in really well. And then with the rotation of the table, I can get the patient at least to be almost supine or almost fully lateral. And so I'll change the angle of the table at different times of the operation, depending on what I'm trying to achieve but most of the time it's in a sort of a fairly lazy uh, lateral position and uh, use gravity so if the if the colon sort of keeps bouncing into view put the head up a little and um, one of the reasons I don't take all of the posterior attachments early is that I quite like the fact that the spleen doesn't then flop uh, too much early on and then uh, I just approach things through taking down the splenic flexure and approaching the inferior pole and working my way up towards the hilum inferiorly. And when that gets a little bit more difficult, I make an opening in the to the lesser sac and follow up along the uh, short gastrics until I've mobilized um, all of that off. And I can see uh, stomach on one side, diaphragm in the distance and spleen on the other side so that there are no more short gastrics holding me up and now from the inferior to the superior everything that's in that area is really the hilum of the spleen and possibly the tail of the pancreas and in terms of the tail of the pancreas if you're not sure it is just imagine that it is the pancreas and you try to avoid it and that might mean that you'll take the splenic vessels bit by bit right up against the spleen rather than trying to take the splenic artery in one go and the, and the splenic vein in one go. In terms of bleeding, when you come across bleeding, again, it's likely to be from the artery or potentially the vein. Um, and for both of them, it's about getting um, brisk control. And usually with the artery, just uh, grasping it uh, at or just below where the, or just um, proximal to where the injury is will calm it down a lot with one of your graspers while you sort out what to do and what to do might be just to put um, some clips on or staple it or um, whatever if you need to uh, expose more of the artery to do that safely then you should go ahead and and do that if you've got the view to do it one of the big problems obviously with keyhole surgery is that if there's bleeding, the bleeding can spurt onto the camera if it's arterial bleeding, or if there's lots of bleeding, you get um, an incredible loss of light and definition and you just sort of can't see. If the bleeding is um, really severe and you can't seem to get control, then pass some Ratex in, put some local pressure on it and open the patient as quickly as safely as possible while one of your assistants keeps compression on that vessel. Obviously communication of all of this stuff to your anaesthetist all the way along. Um, if I was in an exam I'd be talking to the anaesthetist non-stop <laughs> um, but just letting them know what you're up to and, and that, you know that you've got a problem but you think you're going to control it because they need to know about getting blood from blood bank or whatever else they need to do to resuscitate the patient. Do you ever like intentionally take the artery before the veins to try to decompress the spleen? I usually do just to give a bit of a um, uh, an auto transfusion, I guess. And the other thing laparoscopically that does for you is it makes the, the weight and the bulk of the spleen a little bit smaller for when you're trying to bag it and then removing it. Because uh, during laparoscopic uh, splenectomy, I, I want to try and keep the cuts small rather than having to make a fan and steel or expand one of the cuts. And, you know, the reason that we're doing this minimally invasive is to reduce the morbidity of the wounds um, and perhaps also because there's pretty good evidence for most um, laparoscopic surgery that there's less bleeding. 
Um, so we'll keep our cuts small to, to minimize those, um, those wound problems. And therefore, if you've got a smaller spleen, it's just easier and takes less time to, to morselate the spleen and, and take it out. Do you ever embolize the spleen preoperatively if it's very large? I must say I have toyed with the idea on a couple of occasions, but I have not actually to this date done that. One of the things that would worry me would be if you got a bad infarction and necrosis, um, if you were doing it days or weeks before the planned splenectomy, that might then make your splenectomy quite difficult and maybe even more dangerous. But uh, I guess it would be a reasonable strategy if you could line up all the ducks and do it on the same day uh, or, you know, literally just before you started, if you had the luxury of working in a hybrid theatre or something like that, where you could do that at the time, then there might be the occasion where you thought, for whatever reason, that early control or early exposure of the artery would be problematic and that you were very worried about bleeding for some reason. I imagine a case of, say, a large splenic artery aneurysm near the hilum as the reason that you were doing a splenectomy under those circumstances. The dissection down to get the control of the splenic artery uh, proximally might be hindered by the actual size of the aneurysm, and so that might be a useful um, adjunct. But I, to be honest, I've not done it yet. So I have a few questions about chronic liver failure. The questions I had were about managing portal hypertension and ascites when you're operating on patients with chronic liver failure. Hopefully, if a patient has very bad liver failure and very bad portal hypertension, you'd have an opportunity not to operate. But if you were in a situation where you did have to do an operation, what are your tips for dealing with those two problems? Yeah, so, so my general rule is don't operate on people who've got ascites. And it really almost doesn't matter what it is. The risk of uh, mortality and morbidity related to any surgery is very high in the presence of ascites. Patients with ascites don't heal well. They don't develop intra-abdominal uh, scar tissue in quite the same way, which is probably what protects a lot of our joints and astomoses, etc., and prevents uh, complications. The other problem that uh, patients with ascites get is that they develop um, more profound ascites after surgery as a sort of an inflammatory response, and that will lead to ascites trying to leak out through whatever wounds you've got. So as a general rule, you had to operate somehow, and the most common reason that we feel trapped into operating is because of incarcerated and strangulated hernias. But if you, if you really felt that there was no way uh, out of it, then I would engage a hepatologist and um, look at the renal function and ramp up the diuretics as high as you can get them. I would place a uh, temporary drain commonly in the peritoneum to try and tap off the ascites. Uh, I wouldn't always have that drain open because it's bad to just sort of drain all of the ascites out but I want to have the opportunity to let the wound uh, heal to the point where it's going to be dry before I kind of let loose on pressurized ascites trying to push through. In a very elective setting, so um, let's give a for instance of somebody with bad portal hypertension and some ascites, but otherwise relatively preserved synthetic function who presents with, for instance, a a colon cancer that needs a colectomy or something that, that really needs to be dealt with, we'll sometimes use a TIPS procedure to allow them then to decompress their portal system and hopefully resolve their ascites um, as well to allow them to have the surgery. But it's still going to be dangerous surgery. It just won't be as dangerous as if you didn't consider those things up front. So as a general rule, ascites um, should be a, a no-go unless it's an absolutely essential needs to happen. If the patient's a transplant candidate and has coexisting conditions, then sometimes we'll recommend that we hold off on whatever surgery it is until the transplant's done. Mm. One of the ones they love asking about in the exam is an umbilical hernia in a patient with liver failure and ascites. 
What's your approach to that? They're really common. So they're common because the ascites um, pushes everything forward. As the belly goes from being more flat to being more rounded, you um, have a lot of tension put on the anterior abdominal wall and um, it's going to give somewhere and that tends to give it the umbilicus, obviously. So my answer to those is that the patient can have that repaired when they're having their liver transplant is typically the answer. If somebody's clearly not a liver transplant candidate um, and is plagued by it, then I would employ um, the type of techniques um, that we talked about, but only after a very serious conversation with the patient and engagement with hepatology to do what we can to, to dry the patient out as much as possible. I haven't tended to use a tips for those patients because it's usually a fairly uh, simple thing. I do try to avoid mesh because having mesh in the setting of a leaking ascites leak would be um, prone to infection and complications. I have done some of those laparoscopically and used mesh, but I don't in those cases have any breach of the of the tissues and skin at the point where the actual mesh is. Just done them as a, uh, a totally abdominal uh, intraperitoneal approach, IPOM type uh, approach to the to the hernia when I've done those. But generally speaking, if the patient's just got some floppy fluid that comes out and they've got a bit of a belly button hernia, I leave it alone. The times that we operate are um, when there's bowel strangulating and stuff like that. And I don't think you've got a choice about that, but you must uh, do what you can to keep the patient dry afterwards, allow that wound to heal up because an acidic fistula is really, you know, a life-threatening um, complication in this setting. The last topic I have sprung on you is bile duct exploration and cholecotomy. It's in our operative nose now how to do a bile duct exploration. So we have to uh, talk about how we might actually do that as though we can do that. I've only been involved in a few of them and I think I have a bit of a technique, but did you want to take us through what your sort of tips are for setting that up? Yeah, look, it is fiddly and time consuming. Uh, I'm a huge believer in bile duct exploration over ERCP and sphincterotomy. I think once you've done an ERCP and sphincterotomy, you really made that valve incompetent and duodenal juices and bacteria are going to get up into the bile duct. And that may or may not cause that person problems down the track, but if you can avoid doing it in a safe manner, then it's worth doing. So in my practice, somebody who has abnormal liver function test and we suspect a bile stone which is uh, an operation i'm about to do this afternoon actually is a laparoscopic cholecystectomy and almost always a transcystic exploration of the common bile duct and the way that i set that up is probably very similar to most and that is to set up as if i'm doing a cholangiogram i tend to go straight to the slightly larger catheter the yellow catheter to for my cholangiogram in that case, I try to get make sure that I can get the catheter past the valves. And so to do that, I make sure I've done enough dissection of the cystic duct before even trying to do a cholangiogram. And that means really taking it almost to its junction with the hepatic duct so that um, you can really straighten it out, that there won't be any kinks or curves to it, and that you can then make your cut not so high and have to confront all of the valves and you'll only have the spiral valves that might be right near the very bottom. Remember that if you've got a stone in the bile duct, then the valves have probably been rendered pretty much incompetent and have been sort of flattened out. The stone's done a lot of the, the work for you that is difficult sometimes in a, performing a cholangiogram. And the cystic duct has usually been a bit dilated because of all of this. And so there, there are even clues as to whether there might be a stone. If you've got a very uh, thin, spindly cystic duct that it's hard to get a cholangiogram into because of the valves, then there probably isn't a stone there anyway. 
I always make sure I milk back the cystic duct because if you've got one stone, there is often others that are lining up in the cystic duct ready to go back down. And I do that before every cholangiogram anyway because some of the stones that we find at cholangiography are when we have accidentally pushed a stone in from the cystic duct that wasn't actually there. So once all of that's done and I get a cholangiogram, I assess uh, where the stone or stones are and what the size of the cystic duct is and what the size of the stones are and really probably most importantly where the stones are and they've come usually from the cystic duct so they should be able to come back out the cystic duct but that doesn't always mean they come out super easy then i'll um, these days just use a, a zero tip uh, ureteric basket uh, down the yellow catheter after doing my cholangiogram to uh, jag the stone and I do that semi-blind but with the uh, image intensifier there. Sometimes you can't get the stones out even though they're they're in the common bile duct not the common hepatic duct. Sometimes they still won't um, jag onto the basket and we had one of these a couple of weeks ago and I had to just put the collidocoscope down and just getting a flexible collidocoscope a good trick that I find with that is to take the uh, sucker and I take the button piece of the sucker off so that you've just got really the metal bit and I pass that through a five millimeter port and then I pass the scope in through the sucker um, pipe and that allows the sucker pipe to sit almost in the cystic duct as I'm doing this and gives nice um, rigidity to the cholangioscope as you're trying to introduce it into the the cystic duct but you've got to be really cautious um, because the cholangioscopes cost a lot of money and they're quite fragile that you don't pull so that you rip the outer layer of the cholangioscope off as you're sort of pulling it in and out of the of the sucker an alternative is just to use a long um, bariatric five millimeter port sometimes to give you that that strength Either way, there's always a little bit of air leak as you're doing um, the cholangioscopy. And then there's uh, often a lot of saline leak from running the saline, in, which is what keeps the duct open and your, and your view available to you. And then pass the cholangioscope down and um, interrogate the lower end, clear any stones there. And if you need to or want to, you can usually perform an upstream cholangioscopy through the cystic duct but you might need to um, disconnect the cystic duct from the gallbladder to allow you to swing the cholangioscope back up and around and so if you're going to do that take a, um, an ender loop and put an ender loop uh, around the upper stump of the of the cystic duct so you've got something that you can kind of grab onto that's um, just a, like a little handle to grab onto to mani manipulate things there and that's how I do it now it's pretty rare that we need to move to cholidocotomy um, but that obviously can be done laparoscopically I think that that it's unlikely in an exam setting that you'd be asked to do that laparoscopically but you can have an idea about how to do it and and you do it in a in a way that's a little bit similar to how you do it uh, at open surgery um, one of the advantages can be to leave your catheter in the um, bile duct and actually just inject some saline um, because this expands up your common uh, duct and allows you to see it a little bit better and makes it a little bit safer when you're opening that up. I wouldn't always use stay sutures when I'm doing it laparoscopically, but I almost always use stay sutures when I'm doing it open and I'm you know, that's just a, a, a technical thing that it's easy to do when, when it's open, but those stay sutures are not as, as useful or relevant laparoscopically. Uh, you want to make a longitudinal incision usually in your uh, duct, and you shouldn't open a duct unless it's of a reasonable size and at least eight or nine millimetres, but, you know, even better when they're one and a half centimetres and they're probably the ones that you're going to be opening are going to be the really big ducts. And the reason for that is that when you close it, you don't want to create a stricture. And um, as I alluded to in an anecdote before, that can be a problem. And then you want to just make an incision where there's no blood vessels running because the blood vessels run longitudinally. You can usually make that incision and, it's, and, and anteriorly or slightly to the right side of anterior is usually a very good spot to make an incision. 
you should make it in a at a height that's going to be easy for you to see uh, up and down and easy for you to close. You don't want to do it so that it's right down as the duodenum folds over the common bile for instance. So um, just, just make it at the sort of level where the cystic duct usually comes in. Of course, the cystic duct could enter in a various number of ways and you can't rely on that completely. But the usual anatomy, um, it's a good spot if you're just opposite that. Do the uh, cholidocoscopy, as we mentioned, I also um, will sometimes just put uh, my Marylands in there. You, you have tactile feedback with laparoscopy and you can kind of feel that you're up against the stone, open the, the jaws and then just very, very slightly close them until you can start to feel a tiny bit of resistance so that you don't crush the stones accidentally and, and pull them out that way. And then finish up with your cholidocoscope. Um, I don't use T-tubes any longer for post-cholidocotomy. I think that they've gone out of fashion and they're harder and harder to, to get, actually. And I think that the evidence suggests that while there's an incidence of retained stones and of uh, leaks following these, that the uh, T-tube the has its own complications and, and in the end is probably more complicated than it's worth. And then just close it up with whatever fashion you're most comfortable with. I usually would use an absorbable suture, which would be a four or a five OPDS or something similar. And uh, whether you want to do interrupted or running, I think that's really entirely dependent on, on you. And these days, you know, some people might use in a larger duct, uh, a V-lock. It worries me the very thin wall ducts having a V-lock because I think it does tend to lacerate things as, it, as you pull the, the Vs through. Um, so I wouldn't do it unless it was quite a thick duct. It isn't hard. It's just practiced. And, um, and, and I, think, I think really importantly, don't even try these things if there's a severe time pressure for some reason. Clear, clear your decks so that you don't have, you just don't have to worry about rushing and finishing in a particular time. You know, your heart sinks when you see a stone in the bile duct on a cholangiogram because you know that you might be stuck there for the next hour or two. But it's really important that you focus on doing the right thing for that person and not be worried about other things in your life that, you know, getting home on time or whatever it might be. Just clear the decks for those things if you're going to start on it. And if you're not prepared to do that, then don't, don't start with that. Would you routinely put a stent in if you did a transistic exploration? I don't. I think that there are many cats and many ways to skin them. And um, I think they're, they're all really smart things. The Nepean group here, you know, published many years ago about not even trying to do transistic explorations, but really just passing a stent across the ampulla. And that's just to facilitate ERCP. I've rarely done that. I have done that, but I've rarely done it. One of the problems is unless you're doing that on a really frequent basis, it's really easy to get the length of the, the stent wrong so that either the proximal part of the stent's still stuck in the cystic duct or you've pushed the whole thing all the way through and the whole thing's in the duodenum. Nonetheless, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, technique if that's the style and habit of your unit um, and you just want to facilitate a safe ERCP with um, almost no risk of pancreatitis. Um, I, th I think it's I think it's uh, a fine thing, but it's not something that's um, a routine part of my practice. When we've looked at passing stents in the liver transplant world, for instance, and I'm familiar with that literature, less familiar with the cholidocotomy literature, to protect our bile duct anastomosis at liver transplant, stents in fact made um, no difference and may have been slightly worse for um, bile duct leaks and strictures. So there really isn't a, a great deal of evidence for this stuff. Um, I don't normally put drains in um, cholecystectomies, but I do drain cholidocotomies. If it was a um, transistic exploration, then the pathway for that patient is no different, even though it might have taken an extra hour to do the procedure. It's no different than a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which for me is an overnight stay and home the next morning. Well, thank you so much for your time and for answering all my questions. No worries. That was so incredible. And I'm really grateful that you've lent all of your experience and obviously amazing operative experience to us. Was, I've learned a lot. Well, no, thank you. And I, I, the one thing I didn't mention that I would recommend to trainees is to listen to all of your podcasts, because I think you've really 
you've really um, nailed it on the ones that I've taken the time to listen to. And I think they, they'd be really helpful. And I'm just uh, jealous that they weren't around when I was uh, I was feeling fairly lonely and, and, and actually searching for audio descriptors of things because I was um, in, lead, in the lead up to my exam. And I suspect that many uh, people are in this boat traveling often great distances to and from work or at least coming home on weekends and things like that. And so I'd be spending hours in the car where I couldn't study um, and I was kind of bored and just listening to the radio and um, to have a podcast to listen to, which would be educational and pass the time, I think would be fantastic. So well done to you. Thanks for uh, involving me in it. Uh, good luck with it all. And good luck with your exams. And that completes this operative guest episode with Michael Crawford. There were some absolutely fantastic tips and operative pearls in that episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. I love reading your reviews and it makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>